I'm doing something I've never done before. I'm reading through the book of Acts and I'm going to attempt to put the various epistles in the New Testament in their place within the Acts narrative. The thought behind that is it will give me another input as to understanding a little bit about the epistle itself. So our first one is James. James was written in uh, oh late AD 40s, so perhaps 10 to 15 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. A lot of things have happened since then. Um, day of Pentecost, a bunch of uh, Hebraic Jews in an upper room. Holy Spirit falls on them. And a whole bunch of Hellenistic Jews hear their hear the the God the God of Israel being extolled and glorified in their own languages, kind of cool. And I think three thousand were added to were saved. It goes from there. Um, Peter. Uh, heals a lame man. I mean, they raise quite a ruckus in Jerusalem. Peter gets arrested. Uh, and then he just walks right past the guards and goes back to the temple and starts preaching again. Um, they're turning things upside down in Jerusalem. And as we find out later, that the body of Christ in Jerusalem gains some Pharisees and some some people from the priests so I mean, they cut across the entire all the demo all the demographics of Jerusalem were being added to the church. Now, initially, it was considered a sect within Judaism. Um, the religious leaders didn't like it, but Rome, especially, considered it a sect within Judaism, and uh, therefore Rome didn't do anything about it. There's a small persecution. Uh, initiated by Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul. And following his persecution, uh, some of the followers scattered, left Jerusalem to escape it. One of those was Philip. And he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch and leads him to Christ baptizes him. Uh, then Peter goes out and he goes to Cornelius's house, a Gentile. God led him to, gent to a Gentile's house to stay. Um, Peter also heals, a, a raises a, de a dead girl, Dorcas. Creates a, a little bit of a commotion. And then Cornelius sends to him, forget the order. Oh, can you believe that? I just read it. Anyway, Peter goes to, is called to Cornelius's house and an entire household full of Gentiles comes under the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter just basically says, look, what happened to us at Pentecost happened to them here. We can't deny them entrance into the body of Christ. And so that was the first entrance into the church. 
of Gentiles. Now, just as a reminder, and I, I should be more sensitive about this. Uh, I have some friends of mine who are Messianic Jews and who are very, very steeped in Jewish culture for which I'm grateful. It's a valuable resource. And some of them object to the title, the church, because it conveys the image of, well, what we have today, buildings, um, denominations, and it, ha it carries with it some very negative connotations, and, and I totally get that. I'm not gonna guarantee I won't use that word, but when I use it, when I use the word the church, I'm talking about all of us who are believers in Christ. The, the church is translated, the word translated church is ecclesia, just basically means an assembly, a gathering. When I use the word church, I'm using it in that sense, and I'm just not gonna guarantee I won't say it. So when I say that, I'm not talking about the church I go to, or the church you go to, or the church somebody else goes to, denominational-wise. I'm just talking about the fellowship of believers, the church. So Gentiles are now coming to the church, but it's not done yet. Hmm. Well, during the persecution, some disciples left Jerusalem and went made all the way up to Antioch. Now in Antioch, they just started sharing about who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus said. They were witnesses. And remember what I said, a witness is not someone who prosecutes or defends or judges. A witness just says and what they know, recounts what they've experienced. That's what these people did. And Gentiles were being brought to the faith. In fact, it impacted the entire city of Antioch. So much so that the apostles sent Barnabas up there to check it out. Barnabas goes and he is blown away. This is more than just the one family of Gentiles that Peter led to God. This is a citywide movement. So Barnabas leaves that he encourages them and then he leaves Antioch and goes to Tarsus and he finds Saul who has been there for about the last 10 years and he brings him back and Barnabas and Saul teach the believers in Antioch for a whole year we got to realize these are people for the most part they have no knowledge of the Torah they have no knowledge of scripture God's they have no knowledge or appreciation of the festivals, the feasts, uh, the law itself, the Ten Commandments. They're blank slates. So Saul and Barnabas stay there for all your teaching. Now, that is where we're at in the book of Acts. And it's about this time that James writes his epistle to be sent out. Now, we don't know exactly for sure what specific group he sent this to. Um, I have a feeling it was a circular letter. It was just read aloud. But James's letter is full of things that would benefit both sides of this movement. On the one side, you have converts from Judaism, whether Hellenistic or Hebraic. These people would have a solid appreciation of all things Jewish, 
would be familiar with the Torah, would be familiar with the law and the prophets. And James's letter is full of many allusions, not illusions, allusions, A-L-L, allusions to teachings from the Torah and from Jesus. He was Jesus's half-brother. So he probably heard more than a few things that Jesus had to say. So they would understand it. And James' message to them was basically that your faith, if it's true, will be demonstrated by what you do. You, there will be an outward expression of the inward change. Now, if these people were Pharisees or really religious-minded Jews, they're very familiar with keeping the festivals and keeping the sacrifices and and worshiping at the temple on special holy days, etc. They're familiar with all of that, doing all of that. To them, those are the works that they focus on. But James reminds them that they're, that the kind of works he is talking about are the works that benefit other people, taking care of widows and orphans, for example. And he reminds them, you say you have faith. I show you my faith by what I do. So he's reminding these Jewish believers that works are a part of the salvation package, but not just the works of going to the temple, doing the things you do that benefit you. There's nothing wrong with that. Worship is incredible. Yes, worship God. In fact, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the other part of that equation is love your neighbor as yourself. Don't forget those outside of yourself. And if you are truly converted to the way, truly converted to the teachings of the Christ, you will be performing works for others, to others. All right, that's that group of people. The other side of the equation are now these Gentiles, which have been added to the mix, who have little to no knowledge of Torah, perhaps. Not like Cornelius. He was a God-fearer, which means he, he worshipped and believed and read and studied Torah, but he wasn't circumcised. He didn't go all the way and become a cultural Jew. But there were a lot of Gentiles now being added to the, to the body, that were not necessarily God-fearers. They're coming out of the Greco-Roman pantheistic world and they don't have the discipline and the background and the foundation of the Torah. So James basically is writing to them as well. And in James' letter, it's a wonderful summation of much that the Torah contains without laying it out. We're going to talk about the Torah today. No, he just lays out the practicality of what being a believer, a follower of Jesus is. And that's what we, when I read the book of James, I tend to look at it that way because I'm a Gentile. And there's a lot about the Gentile, the Jewish world that I don't understand because I'm not part of it. And I don't get because I'm not part of it. But James lays out some very practical things from the Torah 
that are easy for me to understand, something I can do. And James is telling these Gentile believers, look, if you're truly a believer, your focus is outside yourself. Worship God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbors yourself. So to the one, he's reminding them that yes, works are important, but the works that God is looking for are works that prove your salvation, which is outwards to other people. And to those who are undisciplined in the Jewish way of life, to the Judaism of the day, he's telling, he's basically giving them a summation of much of the Torah. And he's telling them, look, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love the neighbors yourself. Now we're going to see a little bit later on, James gives some very specific instructions to these Gentile believers. But, so that's kind of where we're at. Now let's pick up where we left off yesterday. And I'm just going to read the remainder of the book of James. Who is wise? Now remember, think like you're a Gentile. All right, those of us today in, who, who are Christians, we have the benefit of probably reading a lot of the Old Testament and understanding a lot of the Old Testament. Not so these people, blank slates. So James is talking to them. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and insincere, and, sorry, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, listen to you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this, to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. <laughs> Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver, silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There you go. The Epistle of James. What's really amazing to me is I, I love looking through the lens of history. All right, I, I love reading history. I love historical novels. I love looking through the lens of history because if we can understand history, then we can understand current events. And the reason is simple. Human nature has not changed from the very beginning. When faced with similar circumstances, people will tend to act in similar fashion. So if we know the history that surrounds James' letter, we know the culture that surrounds James' letter, we know the historical context surrounding James' letter in the book of Acts, it gives us just another view 
into this letter. If you read it as a Jewish believer, familiar with the Torah, this letter will read one way. If you read it and view it as a Gentile not familiar with Torah, you'll read it another way. And they're not different ways. This truth is truth. But if I, I read this as a Gentile, I see an overall summation of the practicality of the believer's walk. If I am of the family of God, my life will look like this. If I truly follow God and love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to look like this. So James is sending a letter out that really deals effectively, I think, to both groups of people. There's a new influx of Gentiles. In fact, you might say that we are on the cusp, or Acts is on the cusp, of the church becoming primarily Gentile. Paul is getting ready to go on some uh, missionary journeys. And he he's going to go to the Jews first in these cities, but he ends up preaching to the Gentiles primarily. And the fruit of his ministry is in the Gentile world. Paul, I would say, is almost single-handedly responsible for the shift from Jewish to Gentile culture in the church. By the end of the first century, the church is primarily Gentile in its makeup, at least from what I can understand. And many of the uh, Greco-Roman cultural things have worked their way into the believer's life. And we'll cover that as we as we go through Acts further on. But anyway, that settles it for today. Pretty awesome. Tomorrow, we're going to pick up Acts chapter 13. Saul gets ready to go on his first missionary journey. I think it's going to be pretty cool to watch this happen. All right, that's it. I'm Mr. G. Here's my coffee. Right there. And I am out of here.